Good morning. Good to see you. Um, I want to thank Andy for teaching for us last Sunday. I know that was uh, edifying to you. And just so happened, uh, my wife and I, as we were out because of COVID, uh, we tested negative on Monday. So um, we, we listened to a sermon that a pastor, a local pastor, was preaching, and it was on Matthew 24. The same thing that Andy was teaching, so we got to hear a little, little different perspective, but a good one. Uh, he did a good job with the text, and uh, I know that Andy did, so uh, I appreciate that. So let's get started this morning with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do give praise to your name and thanksgiving for the blessing we have to come together as the body of Christ. Lord, we desire to worship you in spirit and truth, to give you honor and praise which is due to your name. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures and the pen of Daniel who wrote what we look at this morning so long ago, but yet you use it to uh, strengthen us, to encourage us, to lead us into all righteousness. So we ask that by your spirit you would illumine our mind, show us the truth, Help us to understand it, and then, Lord, help us to order our life after it, that we might be more pleasing to you and we might glorify Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So this is week number 14 in our study in the book of Daniel. And uh, last time we started chapter 5, uh, got pretty far through it. And this is the chapter, uh, one of the famous chapters of Daniel that people remember about the handwriting on the wall. A hand just appears and writes on the wall. Uh, the king at this time is Belshazzar. And we looked at that a little bit. Belshazzar is a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, probably his grandson. So Nebuchadnezzar's daughter probably, and Nabopolosar, um, no, uh, Nabidinodus um, got together, and this is their son, Belshazzar. Uh, the year is 539 B.C., so Daniel, having come over in 605 B.C., has been in Babylon approximately 66 years, which is a long time. Um, Daniel's probably in his early 80s, so he's a very aged man. Uh, when this takes place. Um, and interestingly, um, Belshazzar had been king uh, for about 11 years when this takes place. His dad was first king after Nebuchadnezzar, then he went into exile and appointed his son um, to be the king, and they kind of were co-regents, one of them in exile, one of them there local in Babylon. And so Belshazzar has been in the throne quite a while, and as we'll see in the next few chapters, it's during those years of Belshazzar that Daniel has the visions that everybody focuses on. He has his last one after, after this event, but most of the ones that come in the next chapters are before this event, happened during the reign of Belshazzar. So we'll have to backtrack, and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to those chapters but um, interesting, because most people think they all came after, that, or it's just the way we think about it, but they didn't. They came before this event. Um, Belshazzar is throwing a party 
for all his nobles. Yeah, there's a thousand people, the scripture says there, so it's a big party. And after they've drunk some wine and uh, it's had its effect, then they, Belshazzar calls for the utensils that his father or his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that Solomon built. And we went back and looked at that. There are three different occasions in scripture whereas Nebuchadnezzar raided um, Judah and, and the temple, Jerusalem, he took utensils out of the, um, the temple that Solomon built. And the very last reference to that says he took all of the remaining utensils. So they're all in Babylon. I think one of the reasons that that happened is that God had them take them to, Neb I mean, to Babylon so that before Jerusalem was destroyed, those utensils would be protected and kept. And then when they go back to build the new temple, they go back to Judah. Um, so um, God preserved them through the destruction of the temple, which of course was his plan. So they're throwing this feast, they bring out the utensils, they begin to drink wine uh, out of those utensils and a hand appears and writes something on the wall that no one can interpret. Um, Belshazzar calls for all the wise men of Babylon to come and look at it and tell him what it means and no one is able. So Belshazzar's wife comes on the scene and she says, hey, there's this guy named Daniel. Um, he was great service to Nebuchadnezzar during his days. You ought to get him to come and read it. And so he calls for Daniel, Daniel comes, and he tells Daniel, I'll give you a purple robe, and I'll put a necklace around your neck, and I'll make you the third ruler in Babylon, if you can tell me what this means. And so that's where we pick up this morning in verse 17 of chapter 5 of the book of Daniel, um, right in the middle of this um, discourse about giving the interpretation. Okay, verse um, 17. Then Daniel answered and, and said before the king, keep your gifts for you, to yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all of the peoples, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished he killed, and whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished to he elevated, and whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of the beast, and his dwelling place was like that of the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and he sets over it whomever he wishes. 
Okay, so Daniel begins to answer the king, and he's somewhat indignant uh, because he says, you, I don't care about your robe and your necklace or being the third ruler of Babylon. Remember, under Nebuchadnezzar, he was the second ruler of Babylon. Um, just under Nebuchadnezzar, he ruled the whole province of Babylon, he along with his three friends. And so he's already had that position. He's 80 years old, 82, 83 years old. He doesn't care about any of that stuff anymore. He's already wealthy beyond all understanding because Nebuchadnezzar made him wealthy, made all his friends wealthy also. So he doesn't need these things. He doesn't care about the purple robe or the, the majesty because he's had it before. And, you know, he he's very straightforwardly says um, that I'll tell you what the interpretation of this writing is. Now, Daniel probably would have already seen it when he walked in. And remember, this is why I think it's important to re recognize that Daniel's already had the dreams or the visions of the terrible beasts and the beasts coming up out of the water and, who, and the interpretation given to him of who that is. And so he already knows this is going to happen. And, and so he I mean, it's no, it's no surprise to him, it's no big deal to him, um, but it is to Belshazzar. And you remember all the way back in um, chapter 2, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream about this very same thing that was going to happen to him. You remember, if we turn back over there real quick, we can, we can see that um, in chapter 2. And uh, I jumped ahead of myself, but I'll find it here in a minute. Um, chapter 2, you can help me if you want to. Um, yeah, I want to pick up actually just in 39, because he talks about, well, no, we'll pick up back there in 36. That's a good place. This was the dream now. We will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory. And whenever the sons of men, and wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds fly in the, of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And you remember this is a, vision of a statue that's made of multiple metals and then finally clay. And so after that, in verse 39, he says, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. And then finally, he gets to the last kingdom down in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. So he gives him these five kingdoms that are going to occur, Nebuchadnezzar being the first one, and then another one inferior to his, and then another one made out of bronze, and then ultimately um, another one that is the divine kingdom. And so he's a long time ago, back when Nebuchadnezzar first built this image, God gave him the vision of what would happen in the future. And so it was clear that, 
the realm of Babylon was going to come to an end. And now here in chapter 5, it does just that. It comes to an end. So this is what had been prophesied in the image um, way back uh, at the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign when Daniel was first there. Um, so the, these things, are, and then Daniel's had subsequent visions that tie into what this statue represented. And now it, he comes to the end of the kingdom. And so it's no surprise to him. God's been saying this all along. And instead of answering Belshazzar, Daniel rehearses what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And I think there's at least two reasons that Daniel does that. He doesn't just tell him what it says and then it's done. He gives him this background about what happened to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I, I think Belshazzar knows this. It's his granddad. Um, he probably heard the proclamation of Nebuchadnezzar after he had gone insane then came back to his grandeur. Uh, Belshazzar was most likely alive and heard him say that. Matter of fact, in a minute we'll see Daniel says, you already know this. But yet he rehearses it for at least two specific reasons. The first of those, I think, is given in verse 18 of chapter 5, where he says, O king, the most high God, grant his sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. So he wants to make the point that God is in control. And Daniel wants to give God the glory for that sovereignty. And then he repeats it kind of down in verse 21, where he says again, toward the end of that verse, that Nebuchadnezzar would be um, like a wild beast until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Same point. God, the Most High, is sovereign and he does with his creation whatever he wants to, including appointing rulers. So basically he's telling Belshazzar, the only reason you're king have this position of power and authority is because God put you there. And you wouldn't have it if he didn't want you to be there. So he's given God glory and honor for being the sovereign of the creation, even the realm of mankind, meaning that God has not just turned the world loose and it's just going crazy now, but he's in personal, direct control of what happens in the realm of mankind. So he's telling Belshazzar, the only reason you're the king and I'm not is because that was what God wanted to happen. And so um, he's making that point, giving God the glory. I think that's the first reason he rehearses this story about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And then there's a second one. And I believe that is what he says in verse 20 where he says but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly he was deposed of his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him speaking of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar now 
Belshazzar has the same exact sin, that he's proud, he's arrogant. Oh, bring me the utensils. We drink out of those also. And so he's puffed up, thinks he can do whatever he wants to without consequences. And so he's in the same position that Nebuchadnezzar was up on his rooftop when he looked over the um, province of Babylon and said, look what I've built. Look how glorious I am. And he said, and the scripture says immediately he lost his mind and was driven away from the realm of mankind, went out to live in the field as a beast. So, and, and God was gracious to Nebuchadnezzar because later, I believe after seven years, he gives him his mind back so that Nebuchadnezzar might recognize who is in control of the realm of mankind, and he does. And he gives God glory, and he makes this, that whole chapter, chapter four, is a proclamation of Nebuchadnezzar to the, every person on the earth about how glorious God is and how in control he is. And so he, I believe, had true faith, um, believed in the glory of God, and God was gracious to him, restored his kingdom, and he was a good king from that point forward. Um, God used Daniel mightily in his life. And so not so much for Belshazzar. He's not going to get the advantage. He's going to recognize who God is, but he's not going to get the advantage that his father Nebuchadnezzar did, then that is to become in personal relationship with God. And we'll see that as we go on through this. So there's two reasons, I believe, at least two, that Daniel rehearses what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, because it has nothing to do with the interpretation. What it has to do with is giving his God glory and then calling out the sin of Belshazzar which results in the judgment that he pronounces as he reads the handwriting on the wall. So um, I think that's why Daniel goes into all of that. Beginning in verse 22, he says, Yet you, son, but you, his son, really grandson, that really means descendant, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath in all your ways you have not glorified. So he continues to call out the sin of Belshazzar. You think you can drink from these utensils. You praise your dumb gods who can't see or hear or understand or do anything. You're proud, you're arrogant, you've lifted yourself up. And then he speaks of the sovereignty of God. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. All God has to do, Belshazzar, is take your breath away and you'll be dead. Your life is in his hands and yet you're proud and arrogant and think that you control everything and that you can do whatever you well please. So he has the same sin that Nebuchadnezzar had. 
self-centered, arrogant, proud, and God's going to bring him down and show him that he's not in charge, that God is. And we would do well to learn that lesson ourselves, that we're not in control. And anything we accomplish, any good that we do, is by the grace of God. And it's by the gifting of God. Um, scripture says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. So there's nothing that we do that should cause us to be arrogant and proud, just like these men it should cause us to be thankful and to praise our Heavenly Father who has blessed us with blessings untold. So um, we would do well to learn this lesson without having to go through what these men went through. And I think that's why part of one of the reasons why the book of Daniel was written. And by the way, this is the theme of Daniel. We saw that back in chapter 2, that God is in control, that he's sovereign, even over the realm of mankind, and that he appoints king and takes kings away. He changes the times and epochs as he desires, and he does that most often through men, but yet it's God who's doing it. And we would do well to recognize that. So he, Daniel very straightforwardly says, you already know this, Belshazzar. You should have known better. And yet he doesn't. So in verse 24, he reads the writing on the wall, which is really a condemnation of Belshazzar. So verse 24 the hand that was sent from him, meaning from the sovereign God. So this hand is a hand from the sovereign God. And this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed out on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. There it is as straightforward as it could be in scripture that the kingdom that was represented back in the image back in chapter two is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. You don't have to wonder about that. Here it is in black and white. And then he goes on, well, he, so he's interpreted it, and it's a threefold judgment against Belshazzar. It's, um, he's going to bring his kingdom to an end, and we'll see in a second, that happens that very same night. So you're, I mean, an hour, two hours? 15 minutes, something like that, after Daniel gives this interpretation, Belshazzar is done. And so it's, gonna, it's immediately coming to an end. It's already come to an end, is what the writing says. God has weighed Belshazzar on, on the scales, meaning he's evaluated his life, and he's, become, and he's deficient. He doesn't measure up to the glory of God. And so he's found deficient, and then God is going to divide his kingdom between the Medes and the Persians. And actually, the kingdom remains intact, but two 
other kingdoms that are aligned together take over it. And so um, the kingdom doesn't get split. Babylon remains Babylon, um, but the Medes and the Persians rule over it. And we'll see that in full color in chapter 6. Matter of fact, we'll have to talk about it for a while uh, because, um, well, I'll give you that in just a few minutes. So Belshazzar, I believe, recognizes that what Daniel says is accurate because look at the next verse, verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. So Belshazzar does what he promised because he knows that Daniel has rightly interpreted what was written on the wall. He doesn't say, no, 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 that can't be right. He honors Daniel because he knows Daniel's right. He knows he's, he's told it correctly. And so I think that Belshazzar recognizes the truth of what Daniel speaks and knows, knows that his end has come. And then in verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So immediately, Belshazzar is killed. And this man named Darius the Mede comes in and takes over his kingdom. So it wasn't like he had to, like, you know, Nebuchadnezzar heard the interpretation of his dream and had to wait a year before it took uh, the interpretation became true. He knew it was going to become true, and yet he was still proud and arrogant. Belshazzar doesn't get that. He almost immediately, this judgment is carried out. He's killed um, by the sword by the Medes and the Persians. Now, history tells us that there was not a great conquest for the Medes and the Persians to take Babylon. Basically, they just marched in and killed the king and it was done. So there was no great fighting, no great war, no great battle, none of that. They just marched in and took it. And then, I mean, the people just recognized, okay, we have a new king. And they're under the Medes and the Persians at that point. So no great, no great fighting, no great battle, none, none of that. And so um, that's the way that it went. That's God's judgment on the king of Babylon, on Belshazzar. And so these men, I mean, it's a good example for us, who were proud and arrogant, were judged by God, and that judgment was exacted on them. Now, God was gracious to Nebuchadnezzar, as he is to me often when I'm proud and arrogant, and shows us the truth of and the error of our ways and then we can recognize it and repent of it and give him praise. Belshazzar doesn't get that. He's just immediately judged. And that's the sovereignty of God. He can do whatever he well pleases, and he does. And that's still going on today. We would like to think, well, no, we're in control, and you know, the kings and the, um, the rulers um, that we see in the news every day and right now, um, those are the guys who are in control. No, they're not. 
they're only in have a measure of control because God has given it to them even the bad guys I mean Nebuchadnezzar was not a, a gracious king he destroyed every other nation including Egypt that existed at the time of his kingdom he decimated them he killed everybody who was in Jerusalem just about he destroyed the temple of God tore down the walls of Jerusalem burned the gates and so uh, he was not um, a gentle nice man he was a harsh evil idol worshiping king and yet he had his authority the scripture is very explicit in this in the book of Ezekiel he had his authority because God gave it to him so that he could decimate those other nations including Jerusalem matter of fact God says you were my hand so um, God can do whatever he well pleases and he does and that's why these stories are given that's why we have the privilege to study them is so that we'll understand that point in the world in which we live nothing has changed it's still the way it was what has changed is that there are no world dominating kingdoms I mean there were in these days you had Babylon then you had the Medes and the Persians then you had the Greeks then you had the Romans um, then you had the Ottomans um, but there's nothing like that today since World War one that's all been done away with and now the powers of the world are divided among many nations and so we don't have which is why I think there is only um, before the divine kingdom the Roman kingdom is the last kingdom um, because that was world dominating there hasn't been one of those since then I mean there was the Ottoman the caliphate but that was over just the Middle East and up into Turkey it wasn't over the whole world and so it was somewhat limited but it existed for a long time um, the Byzantine Empire which is really the Roman Empire went on for a thousand years after they moved the um, capital of the Roman Empire to Constantinople goes on for another thousand years world dominating at that time hasn't been another kingdom since then like those kingdoms and so it's different today but yet God is still sovereign in control still establishing those kings that we see around the world still establishing our president still establishing the rulers of the other nations the prime ministers and uh, the kings and all that is under God's sovereign control and we need to recognize that as we live in the times that we do so because uh, if you don't and you don't understand those truths you can get somewhat twisted around the axles you can get pretty upset about things and and it's okay to be alarmed and to be appalled at some of the things that are happening but to recognize these truths in the midst of that and so this is a timely message for us and it's from the pen of Daniel written in the 500s BC so 2500 years ago 2600 years ago God had him write these things for our edification sure 
Yeah, I don't know why it says Perez and Eupharson. If I if I could read Hebrew, I would tell you all about all that, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there are footnotes, and you can trust them. Uh, he says his, his kingdom is going to be divided. Right. And I think Darius the Mede only had control over Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's yeah. kingdom was much broader than that. And that became the kingdom of Cyrus. Yeah, what he... Yeah, what he's saying is that um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was large, way beyond Babylon, and that Darius was just king over Babylon, and that um, um, that Cyrus was king above that. Um, I'm going to differ with you on that, and we're going to talk about it for a while. Okay, I'm just gonna, and and why would you do that? Why would you take time? And actually, if you could see my notes, it's two pages long. And the reason, the reason is because this is where men attack the validity of the book of Daniel. This is one of the places, one of the primary reasons why they attack it. So it's worth digging into to talk about Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, who ruled what, how did they rule, was one above the other? Were they co-regents? Who is Darius the Mede? Because there's no one by that name that we have in the history. So he has to be somebody because Daniel's writing about him. So these things are difficult and worth discussing. So we're going to, okay? And it'll take the rest of today and a good bit of next week, if not all of next week, to talk about who is Darius the Mede? Was he a real person? And did he have rule? And um, if he did, then what did he rule over? Those are valid questions. They're things worth digging into. And I can tell you that there's um, the mainstream message, what the most of the theologians believe, those who believe the scriptures and those who don't. Um, what they think and then there's a lot of other theories also and I'll tell you that I cling to one of those as opposed to the mainstream interpretation of this uh, even MacArthur will say that um, it's possible that the scriptures here could be interpreted that Darius the Mede is Cyrus meaning that you read it Darius the Mede even Cyrus, comma, even Cyrus. Um, I don't think that's right, and I'll tell you why. Over in chapter 9, the very first verse of chapter 9, it says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. Well, we know this, that Ahasuerus was not the father of Cyrus. That's well-known, well-chronicled, and so I don't think that's who Darius is. It's not Cyrus, because Ahasuerus, who is the, the father of Darius, is not the father of Cyrus. So I understand these different theories. I've read most of them um, in trying to figure out what I believe. But um, I think that one's easily just removed. Um, and so you, you hate to differ 
with guys you respect, but nevertheless, you need to come to your own conclusions. And there's several things that I differ with guys I respect on, and that's okay. Right. Darius is a Median king. Okay? Because it says it very clearly. He says Darius the Mede. So he's a Median king, not a Persian king. Cyrus is a Persian king. Okay? So as we begin to, to talk about some of this and, and who are these guys and what is the Medo Persian kingdom and all, they're. they're is well chronicled in the cuneiforms that there was an alliance between the Medes and the Persians. There's no doubt about that. That's why it's called the Medo-Persian Empire. It was because those two kingdoms came together and formed an alliance. Now there, there are some, the mainstream, who believe that Cyrus conquered the Medes in um, around uh, 540, around 550 BC, which would be 10 years before this event happens in 539. Now, they can't prove that. The, the cuneiforms don't say exactly that, but they do say that there was some kind of alliance between the two. So I tend to think that Cyrus did not conquer the Medes. And one of the reasons I say that is because the, the cuneiforms say that Cyrus was younger than, um, we'll call him Darius for now, that he was younger. And so 11 years before that, he'd have been really young to overcome the Medes. So I tend to think that these two kingdoms were aligned together. They cooperated with one another. When they came against Babylon, Babylon knew they were doomed because you've got the Persians and the um, Medes coming against you. Now, by this time, when this happens, the Persians have taken, um, boy, I have a hard time remembering all this, had taken the Assyrian kingdom, who was powerful, but they had been totally taken by the Persian kingdom such that they were a province of Persia by the time we get to this event happening with Belshazzar. So the Persians are stronger than the Medes, there's no doubt about that, but they're aligned together so the two greatest kingdoms other than Babylon are coming against Babylon. So they stand no chance, it's the will of God that they take them, and so they do. All right, so you have this alliance going on between these two kingdoms. I, I tend not to believe that in 549, 550 BC, the Persians conquered the Medes. Okay, there are two historians, there's more than two, but two main historians who get into this and write about this, these times and the way the kingdoms um, transitioned other than the cuneiforms that we have that were discovered in the 1800s, 1800s AD, that um, speak to this. And one of them we've already looked at or talked about, his name is Xenophon. 
um, X-E-N-O-P-H-O-N. And Xenophon lived from 430 B.C. to 354 B.C. So he was not born until 110 years after Belshazzar died. So he's somewhat removed. And then there's another guy who we have his writings also and that are well-respected. Um, they are looked at and used to discuss, and his name is Herodotus, okay? And he lived before um, Xenophon did. He lived in from 484 to 425 BC. So their lives overlap by five years. But even 484 is 55 years after these events that we just read about in Daniel take place. So he wasn't born for a while either. And so um, people debate, and vehemently I might add, that who's, who's the authority? Is it Xenophon or is it... Um, um, Gosh, I can't ever remember that name. Herodotus. Um, because um, some people take one and some people take the other. Um, probably neither one wrote perfect truth, as typical with historians, right? Um, when you get to um, the time of Josephus, who wrote... Um, at the time of, just after the time of Jesus Christ. Um, there's also another guy writing history named Caiaphas, and they take different perspectives. Josephus is a Jew and writes from the Jewish perspective and gives the Jew advantage. Caiaphas writes for the Roman emperor. That's who he was, that's why he wrote his chronicles was for the emperor. So he writes from the Roman perspective, and he gives the Romans credit for a lot of stuff. And, and historians are always going to be that way. They're persuaded by wherever they live. I mean, if we were writing about the U.S. today, we would write it much differently than someone who lives in Russia would write about the history of the U.S. today. Because we're tainted by our backgrounds. And this is true about all of these historians. So you have to understand that as you look at them and you talk about them. Now, going back, so both of them wrote about this transition of power from with the Mede and the Persian empires. And Herodotus wrote that the Persians conquered the Medes because he is a Persian. You have to remember that when you read his writings. He's a Persian. So, of course, he's going to write that. He's going to give the advantage to the Persians. So, but there's a lot of evidence that that didn't necessarily happen. So I'm not going to try and lay this all out for you, everything that I've read, because it's voluminous and it goes on. But I am going to try and give you some of the, the highlights and the, the points that I came across that um, I think um, hold weight. There is... Um, there's a man, I'll give you uh, his name and some details next week, who is, lives in uh, just outside of uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And he wrote a dissertation about who is Darius. 
And this dissertation was written in, uh, he defended it in 2014. So it's pretty recent. And he does a really good job of summarizing all of the different viewpoints and laying them out of what people believe. He gives that viewpoint that Darius was really Cyrus. That's one of the points that he lays out. But he lays out like four or five others, the mainstream one and then several others. And then, of course, he's writing a dissertation, so he has what he believes, and then he defends it from the cuneiforms and from the writing of these two um, and a couple other um, historians. And I mean, it's pretty compelling and it's worth looking into. Now, I don't agree with everything that this guy says. His name is Steven Anderson. He's a pastor in a church uh, just outside of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, he's a Baptist fundamentalist, which means he's a King James only guy. Um, so I don't agree with everything that he says and everything that he believes, and um, he has 11 children. So, I mean, he's a fundamentalist and to the core. And his, his dissertation reads that way, but it's okay because he also gives you some facts that you can use. Um, like I said, I don't agree with everything that he would believe and teach and, and live, but it, the church, I looked at it, it's a pretty good church. I wouldn't go there if I lived there um, because of some of their beliefs, but it's, it's pretty good. They're very evangelical. Uh, they preach the gospel. I mean, it's not a bad place. Um, so, and I read a good bit of his dissertation. And so I'll use some of that as I try to explain what um, I believe about who Darius the Mede is. And we'll get into that next week. I'll try not to go the whole lesson next week. But I think it's important that we talk about this, or at least I expose you to some of the arguments, because this is where the critics who say that Daniel was written in the 1 or 200s BC, this is one of the arguments they use, is that there was no Darius the Mede, he's not in the cuneiforms, wasn't a real person, it's a mythological person written by someone who pretended to be Daniel and didn't really know the history. And I don't agree with that. I believe this book was written by Daniel in the 500s BC, and we need to be able to speak to those who don't. And so it's good to be exposed to some of these things. So we'll do some of that next time, and then we'll get into chapter uh, six, which is probably the most famous chapter in the book of Daniel, because it speaks of Daniel in the lion's den, which did not happen in the Babylonian reign, but happened while Darius was king. So we'll talk about that some next week. Thanks for your time.